So for thousands of years, you know, people have debated um, whether humans are basically good, corrupted by society, that is, corrupted from the outside in, or whether humanity is basically bad and that society actually keeps our evil insides in check. And you can kind of understand why. If you don't have the scripture or the Bible, well, then you can see kind of goodness in people, and you can also see corruption in people, right? We, we see people do good things, charitable things. We see men and women sacrifice themselves for the sake of other people, and so we see goodness in people. At the same time, which shouldn't surprise us even as Christians because um, people still bear the image of God even though it's still distorted. But then there's the other side, which is, you know, we do, you do any sense of self-assessment and you realize you really do struggle with temptation and you struggle with sin and selfishness and, and arrogance. And of course, we see it in people around us. And so that's the other side of the argument. It's like we've never found a, a perfect person, at least not except one person, which would lead us to believe that people are inherently evil. Not as evil as they can be, but inherently evil. To me, the, outside of the scripture, the biggest uh, reason is that I am a father. And when you see your children grow up, uninfluenced by society, and they sin without being trained to do it, you see that it's already there. Now, here is just a, a funny little clip that makes the point. Two twins, or two twins, a set of twins, and this is just, this is the heart of man. They didn't have to go to school to learn that. Those are babies. They probably didn't learn it from their parents. That is, it's funny, but it's, that's the reality of like what rises from within us as humans is this desire to take, right? And we might think that adults grow out of it, but we just become more sophisticated and socially intelligent about how we do it. So it actually looks better than it really is. The scripture would reaffirm that, that we are fundamentally flawed, and unless God does something about it, um, we're going to continue to live in those sophisticated, um, socially intelligent ways of putting yourself first, because of the heart, has to do with the heart. Now, these last two of the Ten Commandments, these last two address the heart by contrast to the previous eight. The previous eight largely addresses action or behavior that's observable. You could see it, you could hear it. So you could tell if somebody was keeping the Sabbath or not because they didn't work. You could tell if somebody was taking the Lord's name in vain because you could hear it. Uh, adultery, stealing, uh, bearing false witness, all of those things could be recorded on a DVD and taken to court. So the first eight are largely observable and have to do with actions. These last two... These last two round it out and show us in this part of the brilliance of these Ten Commandments that it addresses the whole of our humanity, not just the action or behavior, but the heart itself. It's that unseen, unobservable part of us that only the Lord can see, the heart, and it's going to address the heart. And so you realize 
these 10 really do address our full humanity. It tells us how to live um, lives in relationship to God. You shall have no other God before you. How to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Teaches us how to love, with, uh, how to love each other as, as a neighbor. And now it's going to address our hearts. So the whole of humanity is addressed. So which brings us to these final two that have to do, again, with the heart. Verse 21, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's number nine. And then number 10, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So here you have two commands, slightly different. One focuses on the covenant of marriage and the other on personal property. Now what I want to do this morning in looking at these two in preparation for the Lord's table is to look at what does it mean to covet? I think it's important to get our heads around that. That is by way of understanding. And then, how is it that we can overcome this temptation to covet what other people have, whether it's someone's wife or whether it's someone's possessions? First question, what does it mean to covet? Now, the reason I think that 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 question is important is because we have various levels or degrees and words that describe those various levels of degrees of desire. You can like something. You can want something, you can long for something, yearn for something, crave something. So where in this continuum of degree does coveting come in? At what point do you cross the line? For example, a couple of uh, family camps ago, Adam Barngraf happened to bring something called the Smokinator. To, that shouldn't surprise you. That goes right inside of his Weber barbecue. And it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient modern world. It's, I, he, he had me feed it and put ribs on there. And after it was done, those were some of the best tasting smoked ribs I've ever had. And guess who went on Amazon a couple months later and ordered one for myself? Now, in my desire to have the smokinator, am I crossing a boundary? Or if you see one of your girlfriends rocking some shoes, and you think, where did you get those shoes? It's like 50 bucks, Target. Have you crossed a line if you go to Target to get what she has? Or if you see somebody has a better looking beard than you, grow bigger and bushier, are, are you crossing a line if, you know, you can't grow? That's a good question. That's, our, that's, that's why we have to nail down, what does it mean to covet? Is it just, just wanting something, coveting something? Well, here's, here's a working definition. Coveting is the illicit craving for or even scheming to acquire that which belongs to others. In other words, it speaks of a covetous disposition that leads to action. It's powerful. And it's, it's an illicit. You'll notice that both of the commands have to do with wanting somebody that belongs to somebody else. Either in, in, by way of covenant of marriage, which is never right, or by way of possessions that your neighbor has. That is, it's addressing things that are off limits to us. Either by way of covenant or by way of per personal property ownership. Both of these things. So as, a, as an example of the first one, you think about King David walking on his palace. He let down his guard, and he sees, probably on the rooftop down below him, he sees a pretty lady by the name of Bathsheba. 
and he's attracted. But that attraction crosses a line because then he sends for her, he takes her, and she belongs to another man. And the consequences to himself, to his family, and to his nation are catastrophic. Because he went beyond just, hey, sure, there's an attractive lady, to now wanting her in a way that is illicit. What he should have done is he should have watched over his heart like a hawk, like to guard your heart. The moment there was a, 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 a movement towards her, like a too long of a stare, a, 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 a red light, warning light, should have went off in his heart. Just like, eh, 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 this is danger. Dangerous place to be. I'm crossing a line here. Like, is it wrong to, to, to think in your heart or think in your head when you meet a, a nice lady who's married? It's like, no, oh, she's a really sweet lady and she's attractive. Or you meet a nice but married man and you realize, hi, oh, he's a handsome, funny guy. Those things are all factual, maybe. But as soon as that turns into a pull or a draw, or you find yourself moving in the wrong direction, there should be this red light just going, warning, we're in a dangerous place right here. And we have a conscience to help us with that. A violation of a conscience is that light going off going, danger, pull up the nose of the plane. You're not supposed to be here. And that's where the battle is. It's not just to cut off your actions. By the time you get to the actions, it might be too late. These internal motivations, or in this case, when it comes to marriage, this may be sexual attraction. It's like taking a candle to some dry kindling. Once it starts, it's very difficult to put out. So the best thing is that first impulse, the first pull, the draw, that's a sign that a line is coming. So you better just to pull up immediately. Well, that's the marriage side of things. and Not to covet. Don't cross the line. Guard your heart. Pay attention. Monitor it. You can't just, like David, just for whatever reasons, he just let his desires run free. And as a result... Um, Lots of death happened. Now, possessions are a little bit different, a little bit of a different drive. I mean, it's not going to be sexual attraction necessarily. It might be power or the value you feel or worth you feel in having greater possessions. But nevertheless, the second part is don't desire what your neighbor has, right? Now, to be sure, I think people do, you know, connive and try to figure out how you can get something from somebody else. It's happened in dorm rooms where... Um, roommates have taken another roommate's clothes because they're nicer and name brand and so forth and then lied about it later. To be sure, that happens. But I realize most of us in here are believers, Christians, and so the idea of actually taking somebody from, something from somebody else that is stealing from them and, and, and covetousness moves one to violate one of the previous commands, thou shalt not steal. But may I suggest that there's another way that we express a covetous heart that's much more pervasive and um, prevalent. And that is this uh, drive to keep up with the Joneses. I think it's the same drive. You see, we live in a relatively affluent society where you don't have to rip something off. You can just take out a loan to get it. Right? Right? To see someone who's happier because they live in the gated community, 
can move one to say one discontentment, but want to live there for the sense of being either valued or happier, in which case you're, you think your satisfaction is tied to a thing, to where you live, how much you own. Those are the kinds of things that often, often drive people here, is, is the belief that my value, my identity, my worth is tied to things. And when we see somebody who looks happier going on the exogenous vacation, then we can covet and then in the end want to have what they have as an expression of an idolatry. That is nothing less than idolatry. And, and Paul makes this point in this connection in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where he's telling the Christians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Now, those last three have to do with what's in here, watching, putting to death passions and evil desires. And then he mentions covetousness, this yearning, which he says is idolatry. The, the moment we believe, however subtly, um, that our satisfaction will be found in acquiring a thing is the moment that we're no longer worshiping the Lord. That's covetousness is idolatry. And that, like I, like I said, I, I think that's probably where most of us struggle um, rather than just the people who are covetous than stealing from people. That is to say, this, this particular command, addressed at the heart, is teaching us how to love our neighbor with our heart. Instead of being a taking kind of people, we're a giving kind of people. And that, that, that giving into covetousness is actually corrosive to your relationship with God, your relationship with your soul, and your relationship with your family. So here, that's the instruction. Don't covet. Don't cross that line of finding value, satisfaction in something other than the Lord. So that's what it means. So how do we as people overcome it? How can we learn to live in, with a with spirit of contentment, regardless of how much or how little you have, with your own wife or your own husband, where you live? How can we escape or overcome or fight it? And here I want to back up from Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. This to me is the clearest expression of how the Christian is to win the war against temptation. And it's uh, the stage or the process or sequence uh, are critical. That is, three things are necessary from this passage to overcome a covetous heart. One is a rebirth, two is a resolute focus, and the third one is a radical death. The first part has to do with being reborn. The first part, if then you have been raised with Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, that's another way of saying if you have been born again, to use the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, John chapter 3, John chapter 4, John chapter 3. Born again, new life, the spirit of the living God come and awakening your soul with a new taste and a new orientation and a new direction, a new focus. That work is, is a sheer miracle. Like there's nothing 
that a person can do to change the orientation of their heart. Um, We can change and modify behavior to some extent. The alcoholic can go to recovery and with some help can overcome his alcoholism or her alcoholism, but it's, it's not easy. Sometimes we can change our diet and eat better, but even that's hard, as many of you know. You can try to change your behavior in terms of exercise, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't work. You try for three weeks and then stop exercising. At some level, we can modify behavior. But the orientation of the inner soul, that is something that we cannot change. It takes an immeasurable power, the same kind of power that broke through the tomb when Jesus rose to life again for your soul to change. And that's the first requirement. Or to use the, the words of Peter in First Peter, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us, he's the cause, caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus wasn't just a historical event. It's something that happens in the human soul. When you hear the word, you hear the gospel, and God does something to you. And many of you, and I hope most, if not all of you, have experienced that. You can look back and go, there was a change, a definitive change where where my my heart, I can't even describe the change that came over me. Like, my life was going one direction, now it's going in a different direction. I, I used to hate the Bible, now I love the Bible. I used to hate going to worship or church as a kid, but now I love going to church and worship as a kid because I want a fellowship with Christ. That is called, this thing, new birth. And no one's ever going to overcome a covetous heart without it. We're going to keep looking for things to satisfy our souls. A relationship, a marriage, things, fill the void. You cannot overcome a covetous heart without that first. That's, that's part one. There has, to be, there has to be new life in your soul. Only then can you go on to step two, where there is this resolute focus. And he uses a couple of verbs to, to uh, describe, or not describe, but set us on course. He says, you know, if you have been raised with Christ, that is, if this new life has come into you, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. It's like the focus of this, the seeking and the setting your mind on, is all on Christ, the treasure of the Christian heart. And now this is how it works. It's like when God awakens you and there is a, a genuine rebirth, there is one central uh, subject of your appetite. That is you want to know more and more of Christ. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. It's like I count all things as, as loss in, in order that I may have the surpassing knowledge of Jesus. I mean, know him. That's the central appetite of a new birth is you want more of Christ, who, he says, is our life. And someday when he appears, our life, we appear with him in glory. And everything in him from forgiveness to eternal love to a new creation, all, all found in him, that, that, that's what matters. And that's what satisfies. So in order for us to get to the putting to death covetousness at the end of chapter, excuse me, verse 5, 
There has to be new birth. There has to be this refocusing of life. Your heart has to be full of him. It has to be a constant thing. It's just like you don't eat food just once. You continue to eat. And here it's like set your mind, set your heart, seek Christ as the constant food for your soul. Only then can you find the will and the strength to let go of the, the negative appetites. So it's Thanksgiving, so it's, uh, it's works itself. It's amazing how the physical world has a counterpart in the spiritual world, but I, and I think that's intentional, right? Um, most of you know, my, like one of my favorite things is turkey. I love turkey. I'd have it probably every week if I could, if it didn't cause so much mess. Um, so this week is super exciting for me. And tonight, I get to have turkey tonight, and I get to have turkey on Thursday, and then Friday, and Saturday, and Sunday, all the leftovers, right? But here's, here's, here's what I won't do on Thursday. I won't spend the first part of my day eating cheese balls or shrimp cocktail or cranberry sauce. I don't like this stuff anyway. And there's one reason and one reason only why I will forsake some of those things like shrimp cocktail, which I love. And that's because I'm saving myself for what I really want. Turkey, right? You know what it's like to slice off that little piece first time and you slip it in your mouth? It's just like, oh, so good. So I'm making you hungry right now. I'm making myself hungry. The point being is like, why would we be willing to let go of the earthly appetizers and snacks that really don't satisfy anyway, that are fleeting, transient, you can't hold on to? Because there's something better for your soul, more satisfying for your soul than a car. It's Christ himself. And until there's an appetite for him and a feeding on him as our savior and our king, well, then we're just going to be looking for something else to satisfy our souls with. We forego the temporal satisfaction for the sake of the deeper one we find in Christ. And only then, again, critical, this flow, you must be born again first. You must have new life in you. And if you have new life in you, then you need to focus your attention on the Lord and allow him to fill your heart. Only then, step three, which is like put to death or consider as dead, those old parts of who you used to be, which is idolatry, mentions covetousness. But that last part is important. It's like, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In order to do that, you have to actually be able to identify it. You have to have that little warning light. You have to be monitoring your soul well enough, unlike King David, in his time where he just kind of let it go, wasn't paying attention, to keep your heart guarded and monitored. And when you see that warning light going off, it's time to do something. Remember, wait a second, that has been crucified with Christ and my true treasure is him, not the old life. This is the only way you can radically kill that part of you that still clings to you that wants the wrong thing. So that's it. That's, that's, the, that's the, if you will, the, the antidote to a, a heart that, um, that wants earthly things is to to have new life in Christ, to feed your soul with a focus on Christ, and then to reckon as dead those pieces of you that want the wrong things. And it's 
it seems to me that like coming to the Lord's table with that kind of imagery um, is a perfect end to this. Like these signify, here in food, you know, of cup and bread, these signify the substance of what Christ did for us and pouring out his life for us and pouring out his blood for us. He, he never coveted, but rather gave himself freely to the point of crucifixion so that we could live the most uncovetous thing you could possibly do. And a reminder, this table, a reminder that someday, like, we get to sit at the king's table. Like, did you realize this is just a little pretaste of someday when we sit at a huge banquet table with all God's people at the king's table because he was not someone who took but someone who gave and gave lavishly so we could be part of his family. So as you come this morning, I want you to um, analyze your heart and if there are areas of your heart that you have been chasing the wrong things, I want you to confess it to him and accept his forgiveness, and then take these things as a reminder of just how good he is to us, and ask him to help you, in turn, learn to be gracious and generous with others. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, he blessed it, and then he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take, eat, And as often as you do so, remember me. He likewise took the the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, new relationship. As often as you drink this together, remember me. So this is all about savoring who Jesus is this morning. And I pray that you do that. And I pray that the spirit of God moves um, through these things to satisfy your soul. Let me pray. And as I do, if we can have those who are serving communion come up. I'd appreciate it. Gracious Father, we, as your people, just long to be stirred and long to have your Holy Spirit fill us um, with joy and with love and with peace, with patience. We desire to be people who emulate and reflect the gracious character of Jesus, who wasn't a taker but a giver. We just ask that you would feed our souls through this um, ancient gift of the Lord's Supper and ask you to meet with us and remind us both of the past sacrifice that was made and also the future hope of sitting at the banquet table with our king in his kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.